Alice went on. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So, so long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat. If you only walk long enough. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe in possible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Selections from Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll Another episode of Becoming Human. Here we are. I'm Tyler Kleberger, and if you're listening to this, let me just say, I'm impressed because I don't feel like I have a clue about what I'm talking about. And what I mean, what I mean is that I'm, I'm not an expert. I have no credentials. And yet I talk about things like philosophy and psychology and history and sociology and whatever else. And so a distinction I want to be clear about is that I'm just a fan of these things. If you want the real authoritative details, you know, hopefully you're inspired enough to go read from those experts. But that's not my prerogative anyways. I'm a fan of all of these things because I'm interested in figuring out what we might do with them. Learning and living. That's what this is all about. And today, that's what we're going to explore. Because, you see, last episode, I brought something up that has reared its head a couple times now. And I thought to myself, we should actually just dive into that. Like, just do its own episode. And I keep mentioning this word curiosity. And it's a cool idea. It gets talked about a lot. Word gets thrown around a lot. But it's actually something we can understand and interact with. It's not just a personality trait or an adjective for a small childlike monkey named George. It's a practice. And just for example, there's a philosopher named David Hume who like actually dissects what happens with curiosity. And he has this whole treatise on, on human nature. And he talks about like humans have this love of truth and how humans are naturally curious because the love of truth, it's really like our first source of all inquiry, our, our ability to be conscious and seek knowledge. It's, it's a core virtue of being human and it's necessary, at least Hume says, because it promotes open-mindedness and it keeps us from becoming complacent. How we make sense of the world will determine the way we live in the world. And so the more experience you have, the more that you understand, the better that is going to be. And so we have this uh, propensity for exploratory behavior. We, We seem to tend to seek out novel experiences because it's actually helping us live. And, and so just with David Hume, there's this whole conversation on the necessity and the natural phenomenon of being curious. So how do we become more curious? And I had mentioned how the Stoics emphasized this word amathia, a great word, the, the A word you don't want to be called. And I really hope this like comes into dominant consciousness. But the opposite of amathia for them was wisdom. And one of the hallmarks of wisdom within Stoicism was the practice of curiosity. 
And so today I want to lay out, I want to lay out how the Stoics presented curiosity and a little bit of how David Hume talks about this. But I also want to explore what it might teach us about daily life and becoming more human and building a better world. Because I genuinely believe that curiosity can be developed as a, as a posture in how we do everything. So let's get into it. Let's learn. Let's grow. And let's become a little bit more curious. To begin, I want you to consider a question. Because here's the deal. Our civilization has access to more information than any other time in history. The speed, the quantity with which we can access anything, it's unprecedented. So, what was the last thing you considered and thought, I want to know more about that? And then, you went and looked, and now you knew the answer. And even if your inquisition began with, okay, Google, or, you know, whether you got out a 1900s encyclopedia, whatever the source, I want you to consider what caused you to even think about that question, and then what happened as a result. Last year, right around this time, it, it's beginning to feel like fall. I was outside with my two oldest children who were five and seven at the time, and they gave me one of those why questions. They, they asked, why do leaves change color? Now, eventually this led me, I wrote an entire article about this experience because it was such a convoluted, impactful one. Now, my first instinct when they asked the question was, dang, I really should have paid more attention in science class. Because I kind of knew, but I couldn't articulate it. And so it sent me on this adventure that taught me much more than just the biological process of leaves changing color. And kids tend to have that disposition, don't they? They know how to ask good questions if we let them, which means they might know something we don't. Or they might know something that we have learned or been wired to forget. They know how to be curious. And it's a practice that isn't just for kids. This is kind of the point of David Hume's treatise on human nature, is that we're naturally exploratory. Hume's point with creativity and curiosity was that it was the most ideal medium to foster growth. By understanding the world, you have much more information to work with, but you're also thinking about things that wouldn't have come to your mind without the exploration of the map. You see more. You avoid amethia. And it's this whole process of map making and empathy that we've been talking about with your perspective. It all comes back to curiosity. But let's start with stoicism. All right, Stoicism, it's a philosophical ideology. It's one of those ancient Greek schools of thought. And it's one that I'm particularly enthralled by. And I know a lot of people say that today. I get it. I kind of get painted with that brush. But one of the reasons is that quite literally, Stoicism begins with the question, how do you build the best world possible? Of all of those ancient Greek schools, uh, Stoicism seems to be the one that's geared towards being practical. It's, it's focused on the output of behavior. It also deals with all the mental intellectual stuff. But that's the main point. 
building the best world possible. Now, at this point, you should probably be considering, hey, that sounds like the whole becoming human thing, building the best world possible. Yes, I stole that from Stoicism and some other sources, Judaism, Christianity, to be transparent. But honestly, a lot of ideologies have offered this similar concept. Stoicism, however, I think offers the best method for how to get there. Stoicism began around 300 BC with a guy named Zeno. Uh, He followed Crates in Athens. You won't be tested on this, by the way. But Stoicism was particularly furthered by a, a, a few popular names, Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius, all of which probably never imagined that they would be like a spokesperson for the hip American self-help crush it lifestyle. Please note my sarcasm as an attempt to distance myself from that crowd. Possibly lose listeners. Oh, well. Now, Stoicism is known for several contributions and ideas in the realm of philosophy and ethics. Okay, so among them, a couple here, we, we have one, emotional restraint, right? This is why being stoic is a description for like being emotionally absent. Not completely accurate in terms of stoicism. Stoics practice emotional restraint because emotion is a part of your empirical experience. And as humans are fallible and limited, our emotions aren't the best gauge of reality. And this has been confirmed by some science, by the way. You know, your amygdala and blood flow away from the prefrontal cortex. You don't make as good of decisions. Psychology, however, uh, would have a bit of a rebuttal here. Either way, the focus is on control and awareness, not a neglect of emotional mental states. Which brings us to the next contribution, that you can only control what you can control. Therefore, you need to be aware of what is in your control and what isn't. A big phrase you hear within Stoicism is be dependent on nothing. Don't, don't have anything determine your, your happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, uh, and your humanity. There's also an emphasis because of this on non-desire, specifically what they called uh, preferred and dispreferred indifference. Desire, uh, of course, to the Stoics being a result of irrationalism. You know, you want things out of your control Instead, you should see anything you have as a gift, and you hold it loosely. And, and one day, you're going to have to give that gift back. Um, but these are just some of the things from Stoicism. They even have an unpopular opinion on suicide. But all of these things actually help us understand why curiosity was so important to them. And, and all of those contributions are worthwhile topics of exploration. I want to focus on what may be the core emphasis of all of these contributions and Stoicism itself, which is virtue and wisdom. How do you accomplish all of these behaviors and perspectives? And their answer was by developing virtue through wisdom or understanding. Virtue is the contextualized ethics of what you should and should not do in a particular moment, all right? Wisdom is an understanding of nature. And and what I mean by that, what I mean, what the Stoics seem to mean, sorry, that's getting complex, nature being physics and metaphysics, like how, how the world works. So you have to understand how things work, what things are, and that will manifest in ethics in a particular moment, which is virtue. 
And the line that emphasizes this the most within Stoicism, Stoicism is this. Virtue is the only human good. And we need to understand the world in order to enact virtue. Which brings up the question, how do you pursue virtue and why is that so important? And I hope you see where this is going. Living requires understanding. The more understanding you have, the more you see. The more you see, the better you live. Now, we, we have Christianity to blame for Stoicism's descent, at, at least partly. I, I happen to think Stoicism and Christianity are quite compatible, but when the Roman Empire instituted Christianity as the state religion under Constantine, that happened around 312 CE, an act that, according to some, Christianity has never recovered from, Stoicism and all other Hellenistic schools were a threat to that, and, and not just ideologically, politically. You know, they had to unify the empire, so they had to get rid of these competing schools. Then you get this Byzantine emperor Justinian, and he comes in. He's a remarkably truncated character, in my opinion, and he officially closed the school of Stoicism, and that happened in 529 CE. Now, Stoicism did have a bit of a recovery in the Renaissance, and I would say it's made quite the comeback in modernism, but you have to reach back pretty far to get a good depth for the school. And unfortunately, the remaining writings that are accessible aren't the most descriptive. So that's Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius, and they weren't the founders of the school, and they didn't give the most insight into the thoughts and practices of the school. That being said, what we do know is that Stoicism is primarily concerned with how we ought to live our lives. You know, hence my assumed symbiosis with, you know, particular religious traditions and, you know, other ideological lifestyles too. But one of the most important words in Stoicism, oh, there is Amethia. Let's not forget that. And one that I find the most helpful outside of Amethia, of course, is the word oikiosis. Oikiosis portrays the world as a house of which you are a member. And, and this is actually a common line of thinking in Hellenistic antiquity. The household, the oikos, is the central unit of society. You know, sometimes it would be referred to as a body. But for the Stoics, the emphasis was that you have a responsibility to familiarize other people's concerns as if they were your own. You know, it's a portrait of interdependency where the health of everyone and everything reflects your own health should start sounding like empathy and map making. And this was uh, for the Stoics. Oikiosis was applicable to relationships, to household, villages, politi uh, political issues. And they even took it so far as to meaning all of the world you need to familiarize as they are, uh, as if they are a part of you. And so they used another word, cosmopolitan, and they use this to define themselves, and it's not cosmopolitan as in the magazine, but the literal sense of the word, which means a citizen of the universe. They said, you're part of the oikiosis of all things. You're a citizen of the universe. Therefore, you ought to live accordingly. And so you get this big, broad, vast picture of your relationship to the whole. But then they zoom in just as much. And they have a particular focus for the individual 
in relationship to, you know, be a cosmopolitan of the oikiosis. And it's that you, as an individual, are but a mortal human who is going to die. You should be very diligent then with what you do with your remaining days. Essentially, when you are buried, what will you have done with the gift that is your life? Will your life then be a gift for the whole world? Now, you may be saying, how is that particular stoicism? That sounds like, well, most every constructive human endeavor ever. And, and I'm not one to say that all religions, philosophies, ideologies are the same. I don't, I don't agree with that necessarily. But despite the vast differences in practices and culture, ideas, stuff like that, there does seem to be a common thread in the direction these traditions appear to bend. Right? Judaism and the emphasis on shalom, which could be translated as universal flourishing. This idea that they have this covenant and it's meant to bless, one could say, the oikiosis of the world. Or it could be Buddhism and the attainment of enlightenment. There's this resulting removal of attachments, sounds very similar to Stoicism, to bring a holistic tranquility that ebbs outward toward others. There's Islam and Ibadah, Christianity and the kingdom of God, Confucianism and the, the proper attainment of wisdom for the ordering of society. The plethora of Eastern religions also fit into this with their expressions of, you know, all, throughout all these tribes, throughout history, kind of emphasized a particular perspective of uh, transcendence and how we transcend ourselves for the good of the whole, or even take modern Western perspectives like humanism or self-actualization, being the best version of ourselves and creating the best world possible is a part of these. Even the Wiccan read and harming none do what you will finds a place in this perspective. That, that very may well be where the commonalities end, but that thread runs consistent. But now I'm off topic. The, the ancient Greek philosophy called Stoicism, with its focus on how we live in response to our impending end, it used the word eudaimonia, or it might be translated as human flourishing. Sometimes uh, you see this translated as the good life, but it's not in a modern Western idea of the good life as pleasure and comfort. The good life was the cosmopolitan life, the life that enfleshed proper oikiosis. There's a way the world ought to be. And to be human is to recognize that we have been given the gift of conscious reason, and we ought to live by that beautiful nature. The good, meaningful life is one where you live in accordance with how the world is meant to be for the betterment of everything. And this is also why Stoicism, at least compared to other philosophies of its day, had the most obvious ethical system than any of the schools around it. It was meant to be a practice. Now, if you happen to listen to the first couple episodes of this podcast, or if you just have noticed a thematic resonance in any of the episodes, I've been influenced a good bit by Stoicism. Because one of their primary concerns, which again, isn't too different from other philosophies in the span of religious traditions, is that you ought to understand the world as much as possible so to properly live in it. If the goal is this virtue, this practice, this ethic, this, this large view of your life within the world, then your understanding of the world is instrumental to how you will live. 
One image used that I love is how they compare the human life to a garden. And they emphasize the necessity of constantly cultivating the garden to live well. And that, finally, brings us to our question for today. What is the best way to cultivate the garden? And Stoicism's answer, which became this foundational refrain, like this rooted bass note running through the melody of their philosophy and ethics, the way that they found they could best realize this goal was the discipline of curiosity. So I know we just drove around for a while and you're probably thinking that whole time like I don't care about the origins of stoicism or its core beliefs but I hope you see that it's it's necessary to understand that if the stoics wanted to live in a very particular way they believed that curiosity was the means to get there these two things are connected R- remember two concepts are at play virtue and wisdom True wisdom for the Stoics will catalyze virtue. Living life fully and properly will come through understanding the world in which you live. I sometimes refer to this as incarnational learning, moving understanding from your head to your hands so that your understanding becomes embedded in your flesh. Essentially, you will become whatever you put into the garden. Now, the Stoics actually have a very systematic explanation of various virtue, you know, and each Hellenistic school had its own take. But the concept of virtue itself was equivalent to the creation of your character. So the virtues, you know, they're like a roadmap to this eudaimonia. And a brief aside to harken back to a previous point, the Christian virtues that many of us are familiar with um, when we hear the word virtue Uh, The way that they are expressed, that they're known today, were adapted from, you guessed it, Stoicism. Anyways, back to the garden metaphor. If virtue is how the garden will thrive, the unfolding of virtue is made possible by wisdom. You will have to cultivate the best garden possible, but this requires understanding how a garden works. Therefore, you're going to make better choices for how you live, and nurture the garden that is your life, the more you know about it. And specifically, Stoicism emphasizes two directives for doing this. First, you have to understand the nature of the world. You have to understand, uh, you know, from physics to biology to history to morality to science to theology and metaphysics and sociology and anthropology, linguistics, you get the point. You need to understand how the world works in order to best live in it. What is human nature? What are the limitations of humans? How does the mind work? What are the optimal processes for making changes? What does a healthy ecosystem look like? What about a healthy organization or community or relationship? The more you learn, the more tools you have access to, the more you will be able to properly navigate the world. Specifically, They use the field of metaphysics, which just means beyond the natural, beyond the physical, and then physics, which is the natural world we can observe, to make this case. You need to understand as much as you can about metaphysics and physics in order to have ethics, wisdom, and virtue. 
But then the second emphasis was that you have to understand specifically the nature of humans and the nature of yourself. And this includes things like, you know, psychology or communication, but it specifically is referencing the understanding you have of you, not, not just humans in general or their composition. We need to know our shortcomings, how our minds work, what makes us tick. We also need to know what's best for our physical and emotional and mental health. You know, if you, if you think back to episode two, I gave you this image of a graph where you take all the things that make up your life from your internal messaging to your relationships, to what you consume, where you live, world around you, all of it, plants, the bodily functions, mechanical developments and social systems, technology. There's an infinite number of parts of your life that inform, influence, dictate what we do and who we are. And so you take all of those and you could chart them out and you could measure how well do I do this according to the ideal? And so if your operating system is eudaimonia or whatever broad teleological goal, goal you adhere to, you take all of these pieces and if you take them seriously, you can quite literally compare the current reality of all of those pieces over and against that ideal. And if you are going to align your behavior, your real lived behavior within all of these components with that ideal, you need to understand as much as possible about all of those components and about the ideal. The thrust of wisdom is that we will continually learn and explore and discover all of these answers in the unfolding of every day. We keep filling out the map so that we can travel accordingly. The way the Stoics put it, Study everything for its usefulness. You cultivate the garden through this wisdom leading to virtue, and it will produce the fruit of proper ethics. Seriously, I apologize. I still haven't even really brought up curiosity, but hopefully by now you, you can see the implication. So let me give you an example, all right? There's a fascinating anecdote about Leonardo da Vinci and his notebooks. Michelangelo purportedly uh, did this as well. But the artist known for some of the most memorable and profound works of innovative genius, they didn't just show up and boom, you know, Mona Lisa. Or, you know, Michelangelo just walks in, Sistine Chapel's done. If you look at either of these artist journals, you would see drawings of seemingly random things with notes such as like, what is this? Or how does this work? There's lists and categories that attempt to connect previously uncommon similarities. And my, my favorite, it's a drawing of a woodpecker by Da Vinci with a note wondering how does a woodpecker's tongue work? Which then led Da Vinci to actually go figure it out. And with a lot of these things, there's no goal. There's no agenda in their ramblings except to discover the world more and more. And the most important thing that, that made their amazing outputs possible was being curious. Instead of starting by just doing something, they focused on becoming something that would naturally lead to their work flowing from the stored-up knowledge bank they were constantly creating. This is why curiosity is seen as a discipline. 
and this is why Hume says, how, how do you live better in the world? Well, you have to experience the world and understand it if you're going to live accordingly. It, it's building a process of input, which then makes your output quite natural. It's as if curiosity is like the intentional process of gleaning seeds and putting them in the ground. You have to observe the nature of plants and you have to discover every gem of information waiting to be found. And the garden that results is simply the natural manifestation of the work that's already been done. It's like marinating a piece of meat versus just throwing it on the grill. An unseasoned, unmarinated pork shoulder, it might still taste good. But simply by engaging the long process of focusing on the input of content, the result becomes exponentially better. In creating that additional flavor, it's an outcome that's built into your input. Output reflects input. And so you take notes, you think through seemingly random occurrences, you jump down rabbit holes of books and information that has no direct outcome for something you need to do. You store up whatever you happen to find and you nurture this posture of constantly being aware and asking questions so much so that you are like a continuously open portal to everything the world has to offer. Sometimes I'm called a nerd for this. Screw that. It's the discipline of curiosity. And yeah, I do research for specific pieces. I have my fair share of assignments that dictate, you know, what I'm going to learn. But most of what I do is I just dive into something and I compile it. And at the end of the day, I find myself going, whoa, I think, I think these things are connected. It's like tying the clouds together. If you, if you looked at my bookshelf or my notes that I keep, you would probably wonder like, what the heck does this guy do? And most of it, if I'm honest, has no immediate or direct correlation to my work at all. But in the end, all of it actually does. Because it all helps cultivate the garden. Because it all deals with life. Edward de Bono, who, if, if we ever do a, an episode specifically on creativity, you'll hear, hear more about him. Edward de Bono says that one of the prime practices of creativity is generating alternatives through random stimulation. Like, if you want to know more about or understand organizational efficiency, yes, you could go and read about organizational systems theory or do a case study on organizational practices in a workplace. And you should do that. Absolutely. But an example that de Bono uses is that you could also go study penguins. There's no direct organizational theories or practices there. But how many alternatives are waiting to be found by exposing yourself to what appears to be random? Like I, I coach football and I love it. And one of my favorite parts of coaching football, I'm not really a fan of the game, but one of my favorite parts is composing an offensive scheme. It's very fun. And you know where I get most of my ideas from? Not from football concepts, but like gastronomy and architecture and cultural linguistics. Those have formed more football plays just as much as like some coaching clinic. Curiosity, then, is what allows you to explore the map, to know its depths and intricacies, especially those parts that aren't right in front of your face, 
And as a result, it opens us up to further possibilities for enacting what you are discovering. You take all of those pieces of your life and existence as a whole. You ask questions. You have conversations. You soak in the vast wisdom just waiting to be unturned. You observe the world. All of it. Connect the dots. Tie the clouds together. And you keep filtering what works and what doesn't. You want to make the next great invention? You might want to analyze how a woodpecker's tongue works. Virtue begins with wisdom. Our invitation is to engage in the constant discipline of noticing, learning, and taking in the immense wisdom just waiting to be harnessed into ethical action. Virtue begins with curiosity. Let's go ahead and parse this out. I, I want to try to give some concise suggestions for how to nurture this. All right. So first, study everything for its usefulness. A lot of times we limit ourselves only to learning about the concepts that have like direct noticeable consequences for us or, you know, the things that have been penned in great books or categorized as important to the fields of the day. You know, whatever's on the bestseller list or popular in culture, that's where we put our attention. And hey, their marketing worked at least. And of course, you know, exploration of psychology, physics, the giants of scholasticism, that's great. And it should inhabit our time. Awesome. But everything is worth studying. I mean, I love inputting history's best stuff. I, I love learning about that. But a lot of the stuff that is on the top of mind right now in our culture is just because it's been marketed well. How many people and brands are pushing out content, you know, just to make money? How many people and celebrities are, are just famous for being famous? And so they go and they write a book and, well, they have it our attention and it must be worth it. Where we put our attention will grow. And there are an infinite number of places we can do so. What about all those disguised part of the world? What about the stories that haven't made it into dominant consciousness? But this idea of studying everything for its usefulness also means that the study is not necessarily contained to book or informational content. You know, the act of studying, it's simply an opportunity awaiting you in every moment. Sometimes the best way to study is to pay attention, to look and see Anywhere your eyes turn, any experience you behold has the potential to elicit wondrous learning. You know, maybe, maybe learning isn't something you do. Maybe learning is a way you can do everything. It's a posture. Quite possibly, the only difference between learning and not learning in a given moment is the intentionality of seeing. And that is the discipline of always being curious. Your garden will grow in parallel to how much you pay attention. And don't forget, study everything for its usefulness. Curiosity is a kind of learning that implies that you are going to do something with it. Second suggestion. Ask questions. Every day before my children go to school, I speak two requests to them. 
remember who you are, and ask lots of questions. I, I guess it's my way of, uh, you know, trying to hand them something that if I say it every day, maybe they'll carry it with them as they go through life. But if we only study certain things because they seem important, we also tend to neglect the mundane. But if you know how to ask the right questions, nothing is mundane anymore. Why do leaves change color? Well, there's an endless world waiting to be explored there. Again, we could take a cue from young minds. Why can take a plain-looking thing and expose a palette of wonder? Why does that blade of grass grow like it does? Why did that person say that thing that way? Why did that business decision result in that effect? Why does this food taste the way it does? How does this microphone take my voice, hold it in a box of electronics, and then make it audible for you? How does the internet actually work anyways? These are good questions. It may be true that we've kind of conformed to a world where curiosity was seen as immature, you know? The, the questions of children bombard us with what we see as, you know, primitive or undeveloped. Maybe we have been influenced to stop asking questions because it was easier for everyone else. Maybe we should ask, you know, why the bug died or why the sky blew more often. Because I can tell you what happens when we don't. You know, cue social media reference. Because there's a whole lot of uninformed confidence stagnantly sitting around that could actually be made useful if it would ask some damn questions. And if we do, we may be surprised at just how much more we can find than when we let those moments pass by. And I mean, why not, you know? Even if nothing great is discovered by the woodpecker's tongue, you know more about the world in which you reside than you did before you asked. Sounds worth it to me. What questions do is they draw correlation and connection and insight of the map that was previously untouched. Questions give you more tools to work with. Ask questions because questions can take you where answers cannot. Third, practice random stimulation. Curiosity, creativity, these these are certainly linked. And in our very cataloged and categorized world, we take on the assumption that, you know, two things are either related or they're not. They're in the same field or they're not. But I think our categorical uh, nomenclature might just be a form of nominalism, all right, where general ideas that are mere names without corresponding to reality, you know, we just have these constructs that made it easier to qualify the world. And, And they're helpful sometimes. But we might have become too dependent on them. There's another philosopher, Henry Bergeson. He was adamant about this. He was what's called a process philosopher. And he talked about how the world and experiences, they're not static. It's a bunch of processes. And so we can't break them up and study them individually because it's all this intertangled mess. If that's true, that also means that apparently disconnected things might just be a constructive means to make things easier they might not be as disconnected as we assume. Sometimes the woodpecker's tongue can inform more than you think. And a great sign of a curious person is someone who can take two seemingly unrelated things and tie them together. You know, what field or category are you primarily in and what other sphere have you been ignoring? 
what information has been left untapped. Your effectiveness, your virtue, your life awaits the unleashing of such wisdom. Finally, the the last suggestion when it comes to curiosity is that learning is a means to an end. The assumption in all of this, at least to Stoicism, which is something that set Stoicism apart from, you know, other philosophical schools is that knowledge is not all that useful in and of itself because knowledge is just there to lead to virtue. It's wisdom enacting itself in the world. Stoics learned so that they could build the best world possible. Input leads to formation and formation leads to function. If you stop at input, it might be that learning didn't happen at all. We shouldn't just learn for specific expected outcomes. But we also can't just learn and then stop with the information itself. Because learning information is a means to embodying that information. Philosophy and ethics are dance partners. Or if we just need, you know, one last word, maybe a reprise. Amethia. The, the worst possible posture here is to think that you have already arrived. Not being curious is the refusal to understand. Not pursuing curiosity will lead to a worse garden. At, at best, your growing plants is a stroke of luck. At worst, you're going to destroy the garden because you never took the time to understand the art of living. The, the opposite of amethia is the act of constantly and wholeheartedly opening yourself up to the vastness of the world so that you may better live in it. May you practice the discipline of curiosity. May you constantly grow to better cultivate the garden of your life. And as you understand the world better, may it produce a life in a world that lives better. Because through curiosity, it might just be that nothing will be able to stay the same. Happy gardening. I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. And stay curious, friends.